Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I haven't just meet you yet, my name is David. I'm teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community. I was out uh, last week, and so it's good to be back hanging out with you all. Uh, one funny thing that's a little bit of an inside joke on Sunday mornings is when I turn my microphone on, uh, the band can hear it in their ears. And uh, sure enough, today I left it on throughout a whole worship set. So I was singing in their ears, and I'm sure Ryan really appreciated that because I know that helped him hit all the notes. And uh, so I don't do it just to Rich, I do it to the rest of the band as well. So, uh, hey, look, but you know, that, that song focuses in on Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus alone. And it calls us to his depth of love and grace and mercy and sacrifice that he has made for you and for me. And it is the victory of Christ over death, over brokenness, over sin, over suffering that truly gives hope to all. Right? I mean, that, that's why we come to church. That's why we celebrate. That's why we worship. We believe that it's through Christ's sacrificial work on the cross where he pays the penalty for our sins, for, for, for humanity. That's what gives us calls for joy and not grief. That, that gives us reason for hope and not despair. Because of his loving and gracious act, we can have life. It's a truth that always needs to be at the forefront of, of, our, of the church's celebration, at the forefront of the church's worship of Christ. So much so that on the night of Jesus' arrest, just before his crucifixion, he meets in the upper room with his disciples and he gives to his church a practice that will help all remember his death, burial, and resurrection and the hope that it means for all who believe in him. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and 20, we see Jesus enact this with his disciples. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It was a very simple action. A very simple action. Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, speaks of it as representing his body, uh, given in sacrifice for sins, passes it to the disciples, says take it and eat of it and eat of it together. And in the same way, he takes the cup, symbolic of his blood that Jesus will, will shed for the redemption and reconciliation of the church, passes it among them as well, and then commands them to do the same, to do it in remembrance of him, in remembrance of his sacrificial atoning work on the cross. And with this gesture, or with this command, or, or with this event that he has with the disciples, Jesus gives to the church the practice and the ordinance of communion. Why? Why does Jesus give this ordinance? Or what's important about this, of, of coming and partaking of bread and of the cup? Like, why does Christ give this ordinance to the church? What's happening at the end of our services, where at the end of every service we come together, we come to the table, observe communion and fellowship together? Because that's what th this series is driving for. The goal of this series is to help us have a firm theological backing, firm understanding of all that's represented in communion. Because I think when we have that, right, that's going to enable us to not only reflect somberly on, on the sacrifice of Christ and, and, and the love that he poured out, but I think at the same time, uh, having that firm theological backing, understanding all that's represented, I think that can help us experience joy and, 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 and confidence and boldness and have all that that comes with knowing that Christ continues to invite us to his table, continues to extend his fellowship to his people. I think that joy comes to us when we know, we understand, we appreciate all that communion represents. It's going to take us about three weeks. Fair enough? Yes, no? All right, you're stuck. So that's what we're doing. So with this as our goal, I think a helpful place for us to start is with this question. What do you call it? 
right? Because maybe some of you come from a, a different denomination or a different background, and so your name for this ordinance is, is, is different. So, so what do you call, uh, we, we call it communion. What, what, do you, what do you call this ordinance that, that Christ has given to the church? And I think this might actually be one of the most helpful aspects of this three-week series, is going through all the different names of this ordinance. Uh, in his book, The Meal Jesus Gave Us, N.T. Wright outlines some of the different names that the church has used for this ordinance throughout the church's history. And he starts in the book of Acts, because the first century church, the early church, they oftentimes would refer to this ordinance as simply, as they would call it bread, break, bread baking. Baking, bread breaking. I knew I, the tongue twister was going to get me. They, they, they call it the bread breaking, just alluding to what Christ did there in, in the upper room with his disciples, where he broke the bread, blessed it, and passed it among them. But also, very quickly, another phrase that, that developed very early in the history of the church comes from the Greek word koinonia, which comes from the, which the word that we use is communion. It simply means sharing. In this meal, we're sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ. We're communing with him. We're sharing with him. We're also communing and sharing with one another when we come for, uh, commun- when we come for this ordinance. And so uh, another name that came to be used was communion. Still another name that came to be used focused in on our response to the meal, a response of gratitude. Uh, they essentially called it the thank you meal. Uh, the, the Greek word that was used was Eucharisto. Uh, from that came the, the title that were called the Eucharist. Still many churches, uh, still a very, very common name uh, for this ordinance in many mainline churches to call it the Eucharist. Uh, it's anchored to our gratitude to Christ for his love, for his mercy that he has poured out, that he has shown to, uh, towards his people. Still another name, and this one's prominent in the South, prominent among Southern Baptists, is, is, uh, is to call it the Lord's Supper. Jesus initiated this uh, during the Last Supper with his disciples, and, and so it, it came from there. Actually, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians a little bit later on this morning, and we see Paul also call it the Lord's Supper. So a very common name for this ordinance. Still another one uh, that, that came uh, also focused on not just the response to the meal, but more so what do you do after what do you do after taking this ordinance? What, do you, what, what's our, uh, what are we um, physically doing? How do we respond with our lives uh, following communion? And this developed when Christianity began to spread towards Rome and Latin was the official language of the church. You see, at the end of their services, after the communion meal was, was finished, they would dismiss people by saying, go, you are sent out. Uh, kind of similar to what we do at the end of our services, right? When we say, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. That's a reminder for us when we go out these doors, we're being sent out with grace, right? We want to go with the grace of Christ in our work, in our school, in our communities. At the end of, at the end of the, uh, these services, after communion, they would say, go, you are sent out. The Latin phrase was edemessa est. And if you have a ba- Latin background, I probably butchered the pronunciation, but go with me. And so uh, from that Latin phrase, it eventually developed the word mass. And so it was used to, to focus in on after communion is over. Hey, we're sent out with purpose. We're sent out with purpose. We're commissioned to speak into the mission field as one who's been fed, as one who's been nurtured, as one who's been sustained through fellowship with the Lord at his table. And so they, they would focus in on now. This is fueling, in, in so many ways, our, our efforts to, to live out the gospel and to carry the gospel into the broken and, and dark places in this world. And so with all those different names, you know, you, you, as, you, as I say those names, it might th- make you think of one denomination or one church tradition over another. And, and they, they definitely have come to represent those. And, and so maybe that helps there. But I think it's good to, good, in some respects, good to hold all of these in, in its proper tension. Because for me, when I started to learn these different aspects and learn how they came about and what they speak to, to me, it helped me uh, develop uh, just 
more appreciation for this thank you meal, for the bread that's breaking, uh, for, for, for the mass, for the Eucharist, for communion, for the Lord's Supper, because it helps us think about all these different aspects of it that we respond in gratitude, that it is, hey, this is to help us commune with the Lord and be sent out with purpose. And so, yes, I think it's helpful to hold on to all the different names. I think another place for us as we begin this series is to remember, at its core, communion is a symbol. And like any symbol, symbols can have a profound, dramatic uh, impact. They can also be easily misunderstood. But at its core, it is a symbol. And a symbol, symbolic action can picture and represent really what would take thousands of words to say. Again, I'm just going to try to take three sermons to make my best attempt at it. But it's something that you and I do at the end of every one of our services. In just a, just a few minutes, we're able to come forward, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and take of communion. And so what's happening when we enact this symbol? I think another level that adds to the depth of symbolism in communion is that Jesus gives this ordinance to the church by building off a symbol that he had already given, that was already enacted by God's people, by the Jewish people. In our Luke text that we read, uh, we're going to look at it just a second, we see that communion actually happens during Passover. In fact, let's look at it again now. Luke chapter 22, uh, we'll back up and grab it in verse 14. It'll be on the screens as well. Luke 22 verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so it happens in the context of, of Jesus and the disciples celebrating or observing the Passover meal, the Passover feast. Now, maybe you're familiar with what that represents. Maybe not. I'll, I'll bring, I'll, I'll teach a little bit on Passover to help us understand what's happening here. Passover was a Jewish feast that helped the Israelite community remember God's deliverance of, of their nation out of slavery and into the promised land. Uh, we looked at this probably August or September of this past year as we were going through the Gospel Project. And uh, if you don't remember the Passover event, when the uh, Israelites, when they were enslaved uh, to Egypt, uh, God sends 10 different plagues on the Egyptian empire to help uh, encourage Pharaoh, oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's a nice way of saying it, to help encourage Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, uh, to, free, to free his people so they could go to the promised land. And you know the story, Pharaoh doesn't, he doesn't let them, let them go, and then the 10th plague comes, and the 10th plague um, was, was strong, and it's, it's dark and it's powerful, but it's also liberating and life-giving in some respects. You see the 10th plague, God said in judgment for Egypt, for their wickedness, for their sin, for their immorality, for their refusal to follow the Lord, God would send really an angel of death to come and every firstborn male would be killed and every firstborn male in the family, every firstborn male of the livestock would die as well. But God also makes a way for rescue. He makes a way to, to not experience that judgment. And he tells the Israelites, and really any in the land could, could follow the directions and, and, and have rescue as well. But to protect them, God instructed them to sacrifice the lamb and wipe its blood on the doorpost of the houses. 
And when, uh, if they were to do this, when the angel of the Lord come, came through, they would pass over those houses, and judgment would not fall on those houses. And so sure enough, the night of the Passover happens, and, and, and it passes over all the houses covered by the blood of the Lamb. But yet death came to those that, that refused that instruction. And so sure enough, Pharaoh relents, lets the Israelites go. And so that night is, is, is celebrated by the Jewish people because um, it was a, a sign. It was really the moment that they were birthed as a nation. They're no longer slaves. They're heading to the promised land. And that act was a sign that God is faithful to his covenant. He had told them, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And so they saw this happen. They're, they're freed, they're liberated, and they're going towards the promised land. And so with this interaction, they're able to see God's faithfulness and, and, and see how he was faithful to the promises that he made in years past. And now they can have even more faith in the promises that he has made concerning their future. And so when the Jewish people, when they observed Passover, not only did they remember and, and, and think back on God's faithful rescue on that night, they also looked forward to, to God continuing to fulfill his promises, mainly that God, they would look forward to when the promised Messiah would come. So when they celebrated Passover, there was this looking back, celebrating God's faithfulness, looking forward to when the Messiah would come. Jesus, when he meets with his disciples, what's he say? He says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. But yet Jesus knows at the same time he's fulfilling the Passover hope in a sense that he is the promised Messiah who's come. He is the lamb to be slain to, to, for us when we put our trust and faith in his blood. Judgment will pass over us. And so he's the one to rescue those who believe. But yet at the same time, he's pointing forwards to the future hope of the kingdom of God in which the fullness of God's redemption foretold by the Passover will be fully expressed. Tracking with me on that. That one, like, I felt like that one, like, three levels deep, in, or, or not me. Jesus is taking us, like, three levels deep in this, connecting us to Passover. He's instituting this meal, this ordinance meal that's helping them see. Not only is it connecting to what, what God has done, what, it, what God is doing, but also pointing forwards towards the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is connecting this two-part practice of the Passover, grateful remembrance, and hopeful anticipation, he's connecting all of that to the practice of communion. And so he speaks to, uh, of the bread and the cup, foretelling the sacrifice that he'll make on the cross and representing the new covenant that he has with his people. It, it, it's, uh, the, the ordinance is the sign of the covenant that God the Son, Christ Jesus, has made with his church. So communion, we called it a symbol, right? It's a symbol of the covenant that, that God has made. And so the question should then be, what's the covenant? What's the promise? And it's that Christ's sacrifice on the cross will be sufficient. Christ's sacrifice will be sufficient for forgiveness of sins and for our salvation. And so the communion, it speaks to our redemption out of slavery to sin, oppression to darkness, and that Christ, our Redeemer and our Rescuer, has accomplished this for us in and through his sacrificial death. That's the hope that we can have now. We know that he's promised it to us. We know that he's forgiven us. At the same time, that's a hope whose fullness of we look forward to either with our death or Christ's return. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms, right? Co-heirs with Christ. And all this happening as a result of his sacrificial work on the cross. Are you with me? 
I'm not getting good nonverbal back from you guys right now. I'm seeing like heads down, eyes bug-eyed. Like was, that's probably my fault. I've been out, out of practice a little bit lately. And so, but like there's, there's, there's some, some layers to this though. All right, but what, I'm, what I want this to do is I want it to bring layers to our, our, our practice of this. Because I don't know about you, but like me, there's sometimes, even after I preach at the end of this, I'm like, okay, it's communion. I got to go up. I got to get my bread, put it in the juice, and, and back to my seat. But no, this, there's more than that. This, like, observing communion, sharing in the Lord's Supper, it is a declaration of faith and Christ's sacrificial work that was accomplished for the church on the cross in our past. Okay, that has happened. But it's also a declaration of faith and how that saves, how that redeems, how that reconciles, how that ministers to our life in our present now. And it is a declaration of faith in the future work that Christ will complete and ushering in the fullness of his kingdom. It's one act that when we come and enact ourselves, when we participate in, it's one act that where we show and, and, and help us be aware of what's happened in our past, how it ministers to us in our present, and keeps us oriented to what God is going to do in the future. That's also why this is a symbol of the covenant for the church. Because you see, when we place our hope and our faith and our trust in Christ and we become part of the church and we find our place in the community of, of, of the faith, right, we, we join the church and we find our place there. So when we do that, what we're essentially doing is we're stepping into this redemptive stream where what God has done before is now flowing to us and we're part of it. And now we're going to be a part of what's happening in the future. So every time you and I come for communion, all right, every time you come for, let me put it on you, every time you come for communion, you are preaching a sermon. It's just a simple act, it's just a simple gesture, but every time you come for communion, you are preaching a sermon, both on what Christ has done to establish his church, on what Christ is doing in your life currently, and what Christ will do for his church. And so as such, when we come for communion, it is to be a symbol uh, uh, not only of God's covenant and promise to us, but it's also a symbol of our unity with that body, of our unity with that promise, and of our unity with one another in the church. It should be a, a one another at Grace City, and also our union and bond with Christ's eternal church, because we are all joined by the sacrificial work that he has done. Coming to a table, partaking of bread and of the cup, represents this grand and eternal hope. And, and like I said, symbols are powerful. I'm talking it to death, but I, it, 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 that one act of coming and participating in this, it communicates so much in such a simple way. But like I said, when they're not properly understood, when they're not properly uh, fully uh, explained, then I do believe that some followers might feel confused about what is happening, overlooked, or maybe even excluded. And when that confusion or exclusion exists or, or, or is felt, what should be a symbol of unity in the church can actually turn into a, a source of dissension, can turn into a source of distraction and actually of disunity. And this is the warning that we get from the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 26, which is one place where this practice is given to the church, right? I, I say that almost every Sunday when we're looking at this. Paul's actually addressing a broken expression of communion. You, you see the church in Corinth off the rails. They're, they've got wrong doctrine, they've got wrong practice, wicked, immoral lifestyles. And so 1 Corinthians is actually, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is actually one rebuke after another. 
but it's all spoken from a place of love by Paul. He's, he's wanting uh, them to, to, to correct, to be strong, to, to grow in their faith. And so Paul actually has some very firm words for their practice of communion in, in hopes of its correction. Now, uh, we're, we're going to read this in just a second. I know we're, we're pushing on time, but I want you to stick with me. Um, but I, I need to set up one bit of context. Um, the early church, when they observed communion, they would also have like a church meal or a church feast that went along with it, kind of like a potluck supper, and then they would put communion with it. Um, and in some ways, I feel like we're kind of be doing that with the jambalaya supper next week, right? So buy your ticket. Uh, uh, but I, I totally just plugged it. Stevie, you should give credit for me. Uh, but no, so they would have this big family meal, this big potluck supper, and then communion would be a part of it on the end of it. Which is, is really kind of cool, because, I mean, go back to first century culture. There'd be there that no doubt were just struggling in poverty and not knowing where their next meal is going to come from. But they would know that when they gather with their church family, at least for that day, their needs would be met. For that day, they would be nurtured and sustained by their community of faith. And, and so that was happening. And so it was an expression of the family meal for God's people. Okay, the, the Corinthian church, they were having the feast, but it, they were turning it into an exclusive event. Because if, the, the, if you're rich or if you had money or you brought food, you were allowed to eat. But if you didn't bring any food, if you didn't have the money, then you weren't allowed to eat. And so there were the haves and the have-nots, and that's how they, uh, that's how they uh, observed communion. And so Paul hears about that and fires off this, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 19. And the following directives, I have no praise for you. If your meetings do more harm than good... In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Like I said, tough letter from Paul. Like, those are some tough words. No praise for you. Um, when, you're gathering, when your gatherings do more harm than good, it's basically like, look, you damage the kingdom of God when you come together for worship. Like, I mean, how, like, I would just be like, okay, Paul, I'm, you know, I'm tapping out. <laughs> like, if that was said of Grace City, right, it'd be heartbreaking. And so, but, but he's, he's, he's giving them this critique, and this, the critique that he gives them, the first one that we read is, they're divisions. You are not one. You're not one. You're not unified as a church. You're not unified with the church as a whole. And remember, I've spent like the past 15 minutes hammering this point of communion being a symbol of God's covenant with the church, past, present, future, and how it joins us all together with one. It's a meal for God's family to come together, to join together in hope because of the covenant and the promise that God has made, that he has fulfilled, that he is fulfilling. And so what should happen then is when we come forward for communion, this should pull us out of an individualized approach to faith. We're not in this by ourselves. We're not in this alone. We're in this together. This should pull us out of an individualized approach to faith and remind us we're part of the local church, part of the global eternal church. Now, we're going to be in this 1 Corinthians passage again next week, and we're going to hit it more in depth then. So I'll, ju I'll just say this. For the Corinthian church... They were, communion wasn't doing that for them because they were, had this broken expression. They were still approaching their faith with an individualized approach. And it, it made them blind to the needs of those around them. And you can hear that in verse 20. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. nor uh, For what you are eating, some of you, uh, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, when one person, uh, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So, like, they, 
again, those that had were bringing this food and they were getting drunk off of it and, 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 and being gluttons. Meanwhile, those that didn't bring anything were just standing there watching, watching the indulgence. And like, there, there's, there's no way they could be thinking about Jesus while that's happening, right? Some of you are like, there's, there's how far gone did they get to where that was the case? But it, it happens for them. And so, so Paul hears this, calls them out on it. It's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. You're just partying. partying. Uh, you're just having a party. That's how I should say it, pronounce it. But <laughs> to help them correct, to help them, to, help them, uh, to help them correct, Paul resets the practice for them. And these are the verses that we read every Sunday, almost every Sunday. For I received the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says, Do this in remembrance of Christ. Remember what he's done for you. Remember what he's done for you as a person, what he's done for us as a church. Remember the sacrifice that Christ has made, how he bore the punishment for our sins. Remember the sacrifice that he made to redeem and to reconcile. When we remember his shed blood, when we remember the sign of the new covenant that God was making with the church, that he's actually fulfilling all the covenants that he's made before, that God's providing a way of rescue, a way for a way of rescue from sin. And through all this, God is providing a way of welcome a way of welcome into the family, a way of welcome into the kingdom. This communion calls us back to that glorious truth that Christ has done on our behalf. And so when we think of this, then that should also help us realize, okay, I'm going to follow the footsteps of my Savior, right? So I'm going to, I want to sacrifice for those around me. I want to carry one another's burdens. I want to have this mindset that was in Christ Jesus where I'm not looking at my own interests, but I'm looking at the interests of others. And so that's going to serve as a corrective for them in the way that they, in the way that they would interact with those in their church. And we're going to see more to how Paul calls them out, out on this more, in, more next week. But when we come to this meal, when we come for this meal, we're to be aware of all that it represents and all the hope that we have because of what Christ has done in our past what he's doing in our present, what he will do in our future, and how it binds us together in this church and with the church global. Because whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, so that's the moment we proclaim the Lord's death, what's happened in our past, until he comes back, what's happening in the future. All by just coming, taking the bread, dipping the cup, sharing. Or you can just get up out of your pew, come forward, get your cracker, get some juice, sit back. How do we approach the Eucharist? What mindset do we have when we come to it? Are we mindful of all that it represents? Because the goal of this ordinance is to convey God's faithfulness to us at the promises he has made and how that provides nourishment to our soul as a result of it. One point of application, one point of application here. I know most of it has been the head knowledge and whatnot. One point of personal application. Every single day we're bombarded with messages of greed, selfishness, individualism, animosity, malice, jealousy, envy, whatever. And, and we're people prone to all that, right? We're people prone to brokenness and selfishness. Okay, when we come forward to the Lord's table, this is a, 
in so many ways, I think this is almost an act of protest. I think this is an, an act that pushes back against all of that. Because when we come to the Lord's gathering, we're, when we come to the Lord's table, we're gathering with brothers and sisters in faith. We're experiencing our fellowship with one another, our fellowship with Christ, and we're able to experience the peace, the wholeness, the generosity that Jesus is extending to us as he gives the invitation to us to come to his table. That leads to joy and hope and confidence and, and, and even boldness because we're reflecting on the victory that Christ has won for us and the invitation that he has given and the work that he is continuing to do, right? We're mindful that his work on the cross was sufficient for our sins and so we can come as we are, experience his grace and join in the fellowship that we are not alone, that we are part of the church of Christ. So communion beckons us to come to the table individually but yet come as a church to take hope in the work that Christ has done in our past, that he's doing in our midst, and that he has promised to do in our future. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We love you. We thank you for this gift that you've given us in, in, in communion. We thank you for this gift that you've given us with Lord's Supper, with the Eucharist, with Mass, with bread breaking. God, we thank you for this ordinance and how it calls us back to what you've done in our past, what you're doing in our midst. And it gives us hope for what you will do. Because God, we still see brokenness, we still see suffering, we, see, we still see struggle in this world. But God, we know that you are not finished, that your work is ongoing. And you've been faithful in the past, and we know you'll be faithful in the future. God, help us every time we come to the table to anchor our action in the truth of who you are, what you've done, and the faithfulness you have shown. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Communion is designed to draw us together as one body. And I, I don't know what family meals were like for you growing up. I don't know if it was a high priority. In my family, it was not something that we placed a lot of value on. It's not like my parents were like, we're going to intentionally devalue family meals. But it wasn't something that we placed a high priori priority on. And when Aaron and I got married, uh, we spent a lot of time eating meals with my in-laws. And I... Uh, probably at that time had a lot to do with the fact that we were in our early 20s and we were broke and uh, free meals, you know. Um, but through that time, uh, I began to realize the value of a shared meal and the closeness that that can bring uh, to people's lives and how when you sit around a meal together, your guard comes down a bit in ways that might not normally happen in other circumstances. And I don't think that my in-laws were saying, you know what, we're going to have meals to foster relationships, uh, and that's how we'll make sure everyone feels welcome. I think it was just a natural expression, and there was a sense of togetherness that happened, and, and through that, uh, I knew um, that I was valued, and I was accepted, and that I had a place around that table. And um, we see in Jesus' ministry a lot of his goings and comings and a lot of the work that he did around the context of meals. He kicked off his ministry at a wedding feast. The last thing we see in the book of, almost the last thing we see in the book of Revelation is the wedding feast between Jesus and his bride, the church. And the last thing that Jesus does on earth before he is arrested and crucified for us is that he shares a meal with his disciples. And in that time, he is showing us the value of a meal 
together. As he prepared the Passover meal and shared it with his disciples, he was telling us the importance of this meal, not as individuals, but together. He was saying this is the family meal of the church, and communion is a family meal. It's a family meal filled with broken people and lonely people and hurting people and people who know what it's like to be on the outside. Communion is a family meal filled with people like you and me. And so we've been given a seat at this proverbial table, not because we deserve to be there, but because we've been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God through the salvation that we have in Christ. So before we take communion together this morning, I want to encourage you with two thoughts. The first is that you would take seriously the words of Paul. Uh, starting in verse 27, the, the passage that David just read, he reminds the church to examine their lives before they take communion. Um, if you, I, don't, I don't know uh, if you've ever had this um, happen to you. It happens to me a lot because I tend to put my foot in my mouth a lot. Uh, like you do something that hurts a relationship and then you're like around that person and it's really awkward. And uh, there's that moment where like you and they and like everyone around you knows that you need to shine some light on the thing that is happening. You need to clear the air. You need to confess your sin. And it's the same way when we approach the table of God. The meal doesn't taste quite right when we don't shine the light of his truth onto our sins. So before we approach the table, I would encourage you to examine your lives and um, allow his light to shine on your uh, sin and to confess that to him. Um, yeah. The second thing I'd like for you to do is to think about the value of sharing this meal together as someone who is part of a family, someone who is sharing in this moment with brothers and sisters, sisters in Christ, realizing this isn't about our individuality, it's about our coming together as one people. Some of you have not professed faith in Christ and you are outside God's family and we would ask this morning that if that's true for you, uh, that you would not participate this morning in communion because communion is, as David mentioned, it is, I mentioned, I, it was the whole sermon, uh, it is a symbol of our profession of faith in his atoning work for us. Uh, but there's good news in that for you. If you know that to be true in your life, the good news is the good news of the gospel of Christ. It's him showing us through his sacrifice, the death that is in us because of sin and the life that we have in him because of his victory over sin and death. And so we'd love to have a conversation with you about that. When we, when we take communion, there'll be some folks down here in the front. Uh, we'd love to have that conversation if you're ready to take that step. So uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to reread that passage from Luke chapter 14. Then I'll pray for us and then we'll take communion together. And when the hour came... He reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, 
this cup that is poured out for you, this is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters, for drawing us into your family, for making us who are outsiders feel welcomed at a table that we do not deserve to sit at. I ask today that you would help us recognize the sin in our lives, that we would turn from it, that we would confess it to you, recognizing that you are a greater treasure than our greatest idol, and that we would see the value of sharing in this meal together as people who have been called together in unity and for oneness. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, and we thank you for your resurrection and victory over death and sin. This is in the name of Christ that we pray.